0: Hello. This episode was recorded a few weeks ago before the murder of George Floyd and the waves of protests across the city and the country. Now, as ever, we must look to history to understand the depth of the despair that we are seeing. We must look to the enduring legacies of structural racism so that we can begin to confront and dismantle them. This episode is about one of those legacies, the scourge of white nationalism and the ways it operates today. The Leskin Center is deeply appreciative to the hard-working team of UCLA undergraduates who researched the paper, All is Not Well in the Golden State, and who are interviewed on this episode of Then and Now. It is appropriate to acknowledge them in this final week of classes at UCLA, for their work demonstrates clearly the necessity of learning from the past to understand the present and to better the future. We hope that you enjoy and learn from this episode. Thank you. Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every week we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now.
1: Welcome to Then and Now, a new podcast sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA, where we study change in order to make change. I'm David Myers. I teach in the UCLA Department of History and direct the Luskin Center. The goal of the podcast is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand better how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternate and better futures. We're pleased to welcome today three UCLA undergraduates. Grace Johnston Glick, James Knee, and Gavin Kwan, who contributed to a forthcoming Musken Center report called, All Is Not Well in the Golden State, The Scourge of White Nationalism in California. This is a most timely subject, since white nationalism has inspired acts of murderous violence in recent years in Pittsburgh, Poway, California, Christchurch, New Zealand, and El Paso, Texas, among other places. And today, in our current COVID 19 era, white nationalists are disseminating conspiracy theories claiming that Jews, among others, are responsible for spreading the virus. Grace, James, and Gavin were part of a team of a dozen researchers, most of whom were UCLA undergraduates, who explored the persistence of white nationalism with a particular interest in its long standing presence here in California, which seems somewhat ironic given California's reputation as a liberal progressive state open to all comers. And that's an an irony that we'll have an opportunity to explore in the show. But first, I'd like to welcome Grace, James, and Gavin to then and now. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Good. So let's begin with um, a simple question. What drew you to this research project? Why were you drawn to study white nationalism? Grace.
2: Oh, well, we were all a part of a class that you taught actually on the history of anti-Semitism. And I think, you know, just from that starting off point, it was clear that we all had an interest in the topic because we signed up for a class like that. And for me personally, my background is really specifically on 20th century American history. So I knew I could have something to add, and it was very topical and worthy uh, subject for research.
3: James. So, as Grace said, I was part of that History of Anti-Semitism class, and that certainly drew my attention to the topic. Also, I had been already doing some research work for the Luskin Center for History and Policy uh, beforehand, working on a report on anti-Semitism around the world. And even though I was looking at Russia, Ukraine, and Poland, it just it brought to my mind and to my attention the fact that anti-Semitism is quite unfortunately alive and well in the world. And so when I heard about this uh, report, it brought to my attention that it's alive and well in California as well. And so uh, that was one of the main reasons why I really engaged with this work. Thank you. Gavin, what drew you to the project?
4: Um, One of my biggest reasons that drew me to the project was the fact that I had uh, family members that grew up during the time of when white nationalism was rampant during the 1930s and 40s. And hearing about those stories and having the opportunity to expand on that really drew me to that and the fact that I'm a native of California, and this is something that I think is a very big problem and something that has been a problem for California for a very long time and needs to be expanded upon and understood.
1: Okay. So tell us a little bit about what the report actually does. How is it organized?
4: Yeah. Well, the report was organized um, along three different, or I'm sorry, along um, different pods, um, one, of the, um, one of the pods was history. We looked at the history of uh, white nationalism in Southern California. Um, another pod was ideology, where they looked at the ideology of white nationalism in Southern California, how it's expanded over time. Um, another uh, pod that looked at it uh, was internet, how the internet has been used to um, disseminate and uh, was used as propaganda, basically, during this modern period for white nationalism, um, another group looked at mapping. Where do these events take place? Where are these groups located in Southern California? Where are, they're, you know, where are they concentrated the most? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And finally, we had um, some policy recommendations, too, at the end of our report, basically, um, hopefully to guide policymakers, um, lawmakers of that sort to, you know, what are the best options on how to deal with this um Unhealthy and you know dangerous
1: phenomenon in southern right. california. So I think we'll hear more about the policy recommendations at the end, but um, What to the best of your understanding after having undertaken research uh, of? Uh, of This sort over the last half year um, What is white nationalism? What is a working definition that we can avail ourselves of white nationalism James?
3: so uh, That's a very good question. Um I would say that white nationalism is a, an ideology that takes white supremacist thought, the idea that white people um, are superior to all other races uh, uh, of humanity, um, and combines it with the idea of the need to establish a territory, um, a sovereign, ideally, a sovereign state uh, where white people hold the hold the power there. Um, so to me, it, it, it's the combination of white supremacy with ethno nationalism and, and the drive to create a physical territorial state uh, built upon white supremacism.
1: Great. Uh, Grace, do you want to add anything?
2: Um, no, we were basically building off of the same definition in ideology, the pod that I was a part of. It was basically just the idea, like James said, that uh, races are inherently intrinsically different and that white people are superior.
1: Got it. So I want to now get to that irony that I alluded to at the outset, which is that white nationalism um, in its many different forms, and I guess that would be one of its characteristic features, which is to say its malleability. It's uh, its uh, the, it, the fact that it has many different iterations and forms. Um, but the irony that I alluded to at the outset was that California has been a receptive home for white nationalist thought. Um, and I'm curious to know, on the basis of your research, why that is. Uh, maybe Gavin, you can help us understand this a little bit. Yeah, that's
4: an excellent question. And um, it's one that we have uh, looked at a lot in the history pod. And um, I think one of the biggest factors that um, you know drew, draws white national tensile in California is its diversity. One of the biggest factors is diversity. It's always been a very diverse, diverse area, whether it be um, influxes of Mexicans, um, people coming from Southern, Eastern Europe, um, it has always been an influx of you know, immigrants. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's <clears throat> always been um, here in Southern California is uh, America has a very long you know, nativist tradition. And I think this is a perfect place for it to play out in Southern California.
1: Yeah, it's almost as if uh, uh, those who come to California project onto it their sense of what their America could be. Uh, So for some, it is open and boundless and eternally uh, sunny, Um, and for others, it's uh, a place where they can live uh, without the intervention of the government. It's so big that you can sort of disappear into your own enclave. Um, And it seems as if both of those visions coincide and clash um, in the actual physical terrain of this state. James, did you want to add add anything?
3: Well, I would say uh, to more specifically explain the um, influx of immigration is that there is also immigration from within the United States, but of a very different sort than, um, say, people coming from Mexico or coming from Southern and Eastern Europe. And that's a, a large amount of white flight from the Midwest over to California, um, so in the early 1900s when many african americans uh had come and were coming up into the midwest many racist whites uh not to generalize but i mean they they were fleeing from this mm-hmm. increasingly black population for that exact reason that they were black so seeking to have some sort of white solidarity they wanted to they they headed west um but obviously they did not find a, uh, quote unquote, purely white population by any means. But I think that's what I would add, the immigration from internal
1: That internal migration from the Midwest. And I think that brings us squarely to uh, the heart of our historical inquiry, which leads me to ask, what forms did white nationalism take in this state? What was the arc of the evolution of white nationalism Uh, in the state of California. One of the four pods of this research project was devoted to history. Um, And Gavin, you were part of that pod. What does that arc look like? Can you give us a sense?
4: You know, in the beginning of it, we see large groups. You know, these are the KKK, the Silver Shirts, the German American Boon. These are coming from, you know, 1900 through to 1940, um, specifically 45. But these are the big groups. They had multiple thousands, tens of thousands of members in them. They were operating. They had, you know, working together. A lot of the times they were coming together trying to um, influence politics. At some points, there were even, um, you know, coups to take over cities in Southern California, specifically San Diego. Um, You know, after the the World War II, during the Cold War, um, we still have large groups, specifically the KKK, still operating, but they're becoming smaller. Um, Something happens after World War II when um, you know, these groups really get scrutinized. So they're not as public. They are still very much in the public eye, but they're not getting as much support as they were uh, during, you know, the uh, World War II years.
1: So um, can we just go back before, pause for a second, and just uh, maybe drill down a little bit on that pre-World War II era. Um, you mentioned the Ku Klux Klan, the German-American Bund, and the Silver Shirts. I wonder yes. if you could just say a brief word about each of them.
4: Yes, Um. Uh, the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, is the probably the longest- Lasting a white nationalist group in Southern California. They came here almost immediately after the end of World. I'm sorry, after the Civil War. Um, you know, escaping. Um, you know, uh, a lot of the oppressive policies that were happening towards Southern um, slaveholders and people that were in the Confederacy, and they came to California. A lot of them were former Confederate officers, served in the army, and they formed the KKK here, and um, pretty much ran a reign of terror. Um, against anyone who wasn't white. Uh, in Southern California, uh, right after the Civil War, there weren't too many African-Americans, but they targeted Mexican-Americans, and specifically Catholics, who they th- thought were uh, especially subversive. The German-American boomed, um became active. Gosh, I think they were active actually during World War I and during World War II, uh, basically to create support for um, Germany during the, these wars. They, you know, a lot of times they're actually called the uh, American Nazi Party mainly because they had such close ties with the Nazis party in Germany. They were in close contact with a lot of Nazi officials. They um, even got propaganda instructions from Nazis and um, from Nazi officials from Germany coming over and actually landing in the port of L.A. Uh, the silver shirts were another very large, um, actually they spread across the United States, um, uh, white nationalist group that uh, operated in the 1930s and 40s. They um, were headed by a man named, Pelly um, Dudley Arthur Pelly, and um, were very much uh, most active in Los Angeles and San Diego, where they actually partnered with the German-American boon and uh, distributed leaflets uh, promoting uh, Nazi propaganda and most specifically anti-Semitism. They were very, um, they tried to target synagogues and Jewish community centers and um, were pretty much trying to just dump propaganda everywhere about the, the uh, dangers
1: of Jews. So these are three groups that are quite active in the uh, period before the Second World War. You say there's a shift in the winnowing down uh, after the Second World War. Uh, These groups, which once upon a time had uh, mass attendance at their events and rallies and large memberships are much, become much smaller, um, much more marginalized. Um, What else do we know about the activity of white nationalists in this period?
4: Well, um, this is when we see, I think, really the malleability of white nationalism. You know, they're able to shift their focus away from Mexican-Americans and Catholics uh, during the pre-World War II year. They're still going to be against Jews, but we see them start taking on aspects of anti-communism. They start um, going after communist groups and, um, you know, big anti-communist groups with white nationalist tendencies start to arise, such as the John Birch Society. Um, Very active. And um, we uh, and just looking at um, basically how these groups are changing. They're able to shift their animosity to a different group to stay viable within the public.
1: Mm -hmm. So the John Birch Society, it seems to me, is in some sense more mainstream. It attracts a more mainstream uh, conservative right clientele than, say, uh, the KKK. Um, And at the same time, uh, those who hold to... Um, extremist views, extremist racist views, who might believe that the John Birch Society is too moderate, what happens to them? Do they disappear?
4: No, they don't. Um, you know, they're still around. A lot of that can be found in like the KKK. They're still much you know mm-hmm. more radical at this point than the John Birch Society. But um, I guess, you know, when we're thinking of radicals like the Silver Shirts and the German American Bund, they're not so prevalent anymore. It's really becoming folded into more of the KKK and you know, their type of um, you know radicalism, the idea of you know, what does that
1: change? It seems as if there's a kind of uh, interesting period in which some of that expression is sort of mainstream with the John Birch Society and some of it remains marginalized in the KKK. And then at a certain point, it seems over the last 40 years or so, we see another proliferation of new groups. Is that more or less the timing?
4: Um, you know, we actually see the the new, like, when we're looking at new groups, that really comes into, like, the 70s and mm-hmm. 80s. Um, mm-hmm. You know, after the economic crash in the 70s, um, you, know, uh, you know, the kind of radical white nationalism really moves to the very fringes of society. Um, these are the, uh, you, know, you know, the neo-Nazi punk um, people, the guys with, uh, you know, torn uh, jeans and stuff like that. That's when these people start to become more popular. A lot of that has to do with the fact that um, you know, with the passing of the civil rights, you know, just mainstream racism and state-sponsored racism falls by the wayside. It's no longer endorsed in large numbers by, you know, states or anything like that, or governments. And also with the election of, you know, Ronald Reagan, with the um, the idea of uh, mainstream social conservatism, where it doesn't have to be this, uh, you know, you know, fringe society stuff, or these massive rallies, and these, you know, uh, threats of violence. It's, it's moving toward mainstream, which it draws a lot of the, um, I guess, pool of recruits that these different white nationalist groups sort of had a way and towards that more clean cut, clean suit, mainstream uh, social conservatism.
1: So there's becomes a, a a greater degree of porousness between extreme and mainstream. Yes. Um, And, you know, when you take a step back and look at the various forms of white nationalism from the post-Civil War era to the present, what, Accounts for its historical longevity. Do you think?
4: That's a great question. Um, I think, in my opinion, like I said, I think it's a the malleability, the ability to shift its animosity to keep itself viable. Mm-hmm. I think that has a lot to do with it. I think the um, the idea of using anti-Semitism, that it's a core, you know, theoretical, fundamental, you know, part of their you know ideology, is a huge part too. Anti-Semitism is so far-reaching; it's so prevalent in in so many different societies and so many different cultures that I think it's it's a good binding agent
1: to pull mm-hmm. people
4: together to have that longevity right. you know it's never it's always something that's weird its ugly head and it's probably something that's just not going to go away unfortunately for a long time
1: okay well that seems like a good opportunity to shift our focus from uh, the historical features of the phenomenon white nationalism in in California to some of the ideological uh, foundations of white nationalism um, and that's um, um, a topic which Grace, you and your team, uh, devoted your time to. So can you tell us what are some of the distinctive ideological features of white nationalism?
2: Yes. Uh, our challenge was a little bit to try and take these really giant, you know, overarching ideas across multiple groups and trying to figure out some building blocks. Mm -hmm. So we kind of came up with four basic pillars to really focus on that we think a lot of other ideas come out of. Mm -hmm. And those four pillars are anti-Semitism, white ethno-nationalism, anti-immigrant nativism, and hate speech.
1: Okay. So what anti-Semitism we we have heard about uh, from Gavin just a minute ago, can you tell us a little bit more about what each of those other ideological pillars represents?
2: You kind of touched on it earlier in our opener while we were trying to define what white nationalism is as a whole. White ethno nationalism is the idea that white populations are superior to other groups, ergo white populations need their own space in the form of a white ethno state. You see this kind of idea coming out of groups like the Rise Above movement a lot, and they kind of advocate for the protection of white European culture in America. Anti-immigrant nativism is different in that it focuses on the perceived threat white see from immigrant populations. In Southern California, this has really, in recent years, been directed specifically at Latinx immigrants. Um, hate speech is kind of the one that we struggled with a little bit on how to name, but it's the idea of what has changed ideologically because of the advent of the internet.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's basically just trying to figure out how we moderate and how white nationalists communicate online. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay. Well, that pushes us over to James, um, who was part of a pod that dealt with the internet era and the phenomenon of white nationalism really expanding considerably in the internet era. era. Um, And why is that so, uh, James? How has that been so? Um, Why has the internet, like California, been surprisingly or not hospitable to white nationalism?
3: So... I would say um, it's been so hospitable to white nationalism, for one, just because the internet is so vast. Anyone who identifies with any group or is interested in any ideology can use the internet, access it from wherever. So for one, it's just, it's very easy to find community. You don't have to drive anywhere. You don't have to go through initiation rites as you, as you might with some sort of white nationalist secret society, you you just type in 4 org slash poll in, in your search bar and you're there. Um, so for one, it's been hospitable just because of the ease of access.
1: And this is and not a phenomenon that, of the last couple of years. White nationalism made its way to the internet uh, considerably before now.
3: Yes, um, as early as the 90s. As early as the 90s. Um, when, yeah, uh, when... Stormfront uh, was founded by a former, um, I believe, Grand Wizard or Grand Dragon. One of those two fantasy-sounding titles of the uh, KKK-founded Stormfront, which acted as everything from a forum uh, where people could discuss the topics that interest white nationalists to a dating site. It covered the whole gamut of uh, any cyber resource a white nationalist online might. So
1: seen an exponential increase in the number of hits, visits, um, and overall traffic uh, to white nationalist sites, we, I'm sure, have seen a very significant expansion in the number of portals and outlets through which uh, white nationalists can disseminate their views from Stormfront in the 1990s.
3: Oh, certainly. While I don't have specific data on traffic and individual users accessing the sites, there's definitely been an increase in the number of users. And more importantly to uh, what you were saying, there has also definitely been a huge increase in the sheer amount of sites dedicated to white nationalism or that have subsections dedicated to white nationalism. Um, In the course of the research I was doing as part of the Internet pod, uh, I individually was tasked with looking at more fringe websites like 8chan, 9chan, 4chan, which all have subsections uh, of of their sites dedicated to discussions of white nationalist, uh, neo-Nazi, and related ideologies. And that leads to, I think, the second aspect of why the Internet has been so hospitable with the first just being it's so easily accessible. The second is the aspect of information because hearkening back to the 90s when the internet was called the information superhighway, it was called that uh, for a reason. It's so easy to access for one, large quantities of information. Uh, In brushing up on the state of online white nationalism for the podcast today, it took maybe about 30 seconds on 4chan's politically incorrect board, that's what it's called, to find a thread with links to, among other things, a a folder with about 40 gigabytes or a little over 1,600 unique files of Nazi-era publications, so books, articles, and so on. Um, And this is not a freak accident. It's extremely easy to find large amounts of white nationalist information, and moreover, it's very easy to quickly access this information. So, not only is there a lot of it, but you can download it within minutes and disseminate it elsewhere also within minutes. So, the quantity and the speed of information and the access thereof is the, the second major part of why the internet has been hmm. so. Mm-hmm.
1: So, now? it seems as if um, we. The report really deals with two interrelated phenomena, which is uh, the surprising uh, receptivity of California to uh, white nationalist activity, and then the <clears throat> force multiplier of the internet and uh, expanding the voices of white nationalists well beyond the state of California, even though California may be a particular hub. And one of the, two of the um, interesting criteria that you have all hinted at. Or spoken explicitly about, were one the malleability of uh, the actual ideology, or the targets of white nationalists. Um, the phenomenon has both has changed itself um, while holding true to some core principles: the belief in the superiority of uh, the white race. The targets of white nationalists have shifted uh, variously over time. Though certainly Jews, we've heard, have been a very frequent and persistent focus. So malleability, and then the porousness between fringe and mainstream um, seems also to be a feature of white nationalism in its um, most recent uh, forms. And I know that is something that um, that you all were concerned about when you thought about what might we do to combat white nationalism. Um, you forged a series of policy recommendations that really tried to get at the danger of that porousness. Um, and I'd like to hear now from Grace uh, about what you think can be done, uh, understanding that this report is unlikely to kill off white nationalism, but uh, at the same time, uh, you felt it important to propose something uh, concrete enough to actually make a difference. So what was that?
2: Yeah, it was pretty difficult trying to figure out how to really talk about putting limits or putting some kind of you know, gauge on white nationalist speech because you start to really infringe on the freedom of speech that we have in this country, so it's kind of hard to make sure that you can preserve both those ideas, protection and uh, you know limits. So we decided to come up with kind of like a three-part plan, which would include uh, increased me- um, media literacy training and education in schools with a scale of expressionism, so people can start to uh, understand and see in a slowed-down way how people get
1: radicalized. Hmm. So this is a scale, a kind of warning system of what can happen that can transform from someone who innocently absorbs something she or he hears on the internet to becoming a dangerous white nationalist.
2: Yes, uh, it has five steps, the first of which is accidental absorption. Like you kind of mentioned, it's like a kid who sees like a meme or something online and they don't really have the context for what the meme is actually saying like you know pepe the frog standing outside of a gas chamber like Mm -hmm. that's a very specific holocaust imagery Mm -hmm. and they just think it's funny so they retweet it or whatever they're doing Mm -hmm. the next step is social slash edgy transgression and this is like a high school student or somebody who does have a bit more of a background knowledge of whatever joke they're making but they're doing it to kind of shock people so like high school senior who is making a joke about the holocaust who's taken a class on it who knows what they're talking about but isn't really like affiliated with a group like the rise above movement or identity of Ropa. They're just doing it in order to be funny.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: The next category is political provocation. And this one is actually kind of broad. It's just talking about people who are like, uh, you know, they can be pundits like people who work at Fox news or they can be figures like Richard Spencer, Mm -hmm. but their whole goal is to kind of, provoke a response, essentially. They're not really trying... Like, Richard Spencer clearly has white nationalist thought and is engaged in the community, but he really vehemently separates himself from any violent action or any call to violent action.
1: Right, so these are people who uh, exist in or desire to dwell in uh, mainstream media circles, but who may deliver a more fringe or radical message.
2: Yes, it's just, they they like to toe the line a little bit sometimes, I think.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But they do separate themselves from the next category, which is overt hate. Mm-hmm. So that's like a website like the Daily Stormer. So it's something that is just like very clear. They're not really gonna separate themselves as much. They're not gonna say, they might have something that starts to fringe towards a call to action or something.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And our final category is physical violence. So like, as you can see, there's kind of a little bit, even within our scale, this idea of the fringe can slide. You can easily slip from overt hate into physical violence. You can, you know, see overt hate, participate, or like be a reader of the Daily Stormer and start getting ideas about, you know, whatever group that you don't like, like, a synagogue or something, or some specific group, Jewish people, and go over into physical violence. And that's like a shooting or even just, you know, beating somebody up in the street.
1: So this all seems very intuitive, the scale that you've suggested, but I don't know that it has been broken down in precisely this way, um, that to allow us to uh, adopt a kind of early warning system um, so thank you for um, for offering that. And maybe by way of conclusion, you can just very briefly uh, tell us uh, each of you what you hope to uh, uh, you hope this report will do. what What effects uh, do you uh, aspire to with this report? Grace?
2: Yeah, I think for me, it's just about giving people some more context and some greater understanding for how we got here and in this moment, because I think a lot of people, have these ideas about white nationalists, that they're unsophisticated, and that they're not really a threat, maybe, since we're in California. It's more of like a southern or rural background thing. And I think this report really makes it clear that white nationalism isn't really geographically locked. It's really a threat across the country. And that even if their messages might be kind of crude, or might be, you know, written in language that isn't as complicated as like an academic text, the way that it's developed and the way that it's spread can be very complicated Mm -hmm. and very sophisticated.
3: Mm -hmm. James? So uh, one thing I'm really hoping for with this report and that I expect from this report uh, once it's released is education. For one, giving parents, guardians, and teachers uh, information that's just crucial in being able to identify, first off, what white nationalism is, what it, but also what it looks like, uh, especially in the early stages with older children and adolescents. And I think with this educational potential of the report, as Grace was saying, the ability to contextualize the phenomenon of white nationalism, give background and increase understanding, not necessarily in the sense of making people feel like empathetic for white nationalists and wanting to ally themselves with white nationalists, but at least understanding that what white nationalists adhere to and what they think. Because when you don't even understand those basic tenets of their thought, miscommunication arises and you get this cordoning off of just one group of people here, and then white nationalists
1: right over and we here. It's like packaging and uh, and easy internet access. Um, white nationalist ideas can seem more attractive than they actually are. Uh, but with uh, historical context and uh, the kind of ideological analysis you provide, people can see uh, the phenomenon for what it really is, which is a grave danger to society. Exactly,
4: Kevin. What I really hope that people get out of this report, and I. Expect people, you know, once they read it, to have this dialogue is understand that uh, this is not a new phenomenon. Why nationalism is not a new phenomenon for California. It may be more prevalent right now. It may be more in the news, but, you know, this is something that California has been dealing with for over 100 years. And we need to start this dialogue to understand what about Southern California makes it such a hospitable place for it. Sure. Understand what about our society, our culture is allowing for this to take hold here and to, to blossom in this day and age sure. and to understand what, why. You know, and yeah,
1: force us to ask um, and maybe take off our uh, self-congratulatory caps and 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 ask what is it uh, in our midst that permits this well this has been really interesting and um, I am privileged to have worked with all of you uh, since uh, the spring of uh, 2019 and I look forward to the release of the report um, I'd like to thank Grace Johnston Glick James Nee, and Gavin Kwan uh, both for appearing on then and Now today and for their hard work on uh, the forthcoming Luskin Center Report. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you.
3: Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.